you're not Kasima Niehaus. You're one of them, aren't you? Oh my God. Oh my God. You have to understand. I didn't know. I didn't realize. He was backing away from her now, trying to get behind the desk. Vivi tried to suck in breath. What was he talking about? One of them. Sturgis babbled on. You really look just like her. I suppose that makes sense. He giggled in a truly terrifying way, and Vivi closed the distance until she was in reach of him. Incredible. Just incredible. Sturgis raised a hand as if to touch her hair, and Vivi kicked him. She struck him, hard, just above the knee, and he doubled over in pain, which gave her a chance to put him in a submission hold. Whatever was going on here, she had to know. What are you talking about? What makes sense? Who is Niehaus? Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues, a conversational podcast celebrating the culture of creativity. My guest this week is Malka Older. Malka is an author and humanitarian worker with over a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. As far as her author work, her written works include 2016's Infomocracy, which is the first installment of a trilogy of titles entitled The Sentinel Cycle. Um, and the other entries in that series include No States in 2017 and State Tectonics in 2018. And Malka is also the creator and head writer of the Cyberpunk series Ninth Step Station, which was recently renewed for a second season on the platform Serial Box, which is an online service that offers serialized fiction in both audio and ebook bundles from best-selling authors and also includes original content. And this summer just saw the release of Orphan Black, the next chapter, which continues the popular television series, which ended its original run in 2017. And we'll talk about that much more tonight. But again, please welcome Malka Older. Malka, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you to BJ Mendelson for putting us together. And I'm very excited to talk to you about this for many reasons. Also, not only just for Orphan Black, but also the format in which the series has continued. Orphan Black was an award-winning television series that had ended its original run in 2017 after a successful five-season run. But that has not, by any means, ended the passion and dedication of the fan base. And eight years later, those fans are now being treated with a new chapter in the series in an albeit different like fashion than some would expect. So that's actually the first thing I want to talk to you about. Um, being the showrunner of Orphan Black, the next chapter, a Serial Box is the platform on which this is being released. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit first and foremost about being the showrunner of that series and sort of like your thoughts and your experiences and working with this series and now in a different format from a television show. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I am a huge fan of the television series Orphan Black. I, you know, I really, I loved the series while it was ongoing. Uh, I loved the way they closed it out. I thought it was just an amazing take on so many really interesting issues um, as well as spectacular filmmaking and incredible acting. Um, so when I was approached about doing a, a potential sequel to it, I was really thrilled and very excited to dig in. And so the way we have continued it, uh, the television series, if you've seen it, if you know anything about it, you know that there's one actor, Tatiana Maslany, who plays the vast majority of the parts on the show. Right. This requires not just 
like a huge amount of effort on her part, but also quite a lot of technology and time to make this work. Right. And so, you know, I think they ended the show really, even though I was sad when the television show ended because I loved it, they really nailed the landing. You know, they really found a great way to end it and, and get some closure for the characters. And, you know, I mean, the actors who were involved and the other people involved, the writers, the directors and producers and everyone else, they have other things to do. You know, they can't just keep making this incredibly time intensive show indefinitely. So, you know, the way that Serial Box is continuing, it seems to me like a really great compromise that gets us more of those characters and issues and storytelling that we love without quite that degree of resource intensive investment. And right. so what we have is we have, um, what Serial Box does with all of their series is, uh, the series comes out, it's available in text as an ebook. Uh, sometimes they also print books at the end of seasons and on audio. And with the Serial Box app, you can actually switch back and forth between those seamlessly. So you can be, you know, listening in your car as you drive and then switch back to reading. In this case, because the audio is voiced by Tatiana Maslany, that amazing star of Orphan Black, I would recommend listening the whole time anyway. But if you really <laughs> prefer to le- read, you have that option and you can go back and forth or do both. That's a really cool idea. And I also just want to uh, point out that while you are the showrunner, your writing team also consists of uh, Madeline Ashby, uh, Michelle Baker, Heidi Kennedy, E.C. Myers, and Lindsay Smith. And, you know, I was like, I was listening to some of the clips of it. And this is a really cool idea. And having Tatiana involved, I think, is a crucial part of this. So what were his experiences working with her and as far as, like, writing this new series? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great team. Um, and one of the things that Serial Box does in their model is they do do this collaborative writing process. So almost all the serials that they have, which... By the way, you know, if you, you check out their site, they just have this amazing range that goes from sword and sorcery to like contemporary romance to a uh, space opera to like my cyberpunk series, Ninth Step Station, um, to just, just like mystery and the, the whole range of stuff that you might want to read or listen to is up there. And, and it's, it's all written in this way where you have a bunch of writers working together. Um, we normally, what we do is we'll have a writer's room right at the beginning where we'll all be in the same place for a long weekend or three days or four days. And we kind of hammer out the characters, the setting, the meta plots, the broad strokes of what we want to have happen. And then we divide up the episodes and each author will take an episode. We'll all read them and comment on them as we go. Um, in fact, I'm finishing an episode right now for the new season of Ninth Step Station that... I'm then going to send to my co-authors on that. We're all going to read them. I love reading my co-authors episodes and then we'll have a, we'll have a call to discuss each of them and, and get that feedback and then go into the revision. So it's very collaborative as you know, as a writer, it's really nice because you get, you get a lot of feedback and you get this great creative process, especially in those writer's rooms where you're going back and forth and kind of, you know, one up in each other and coming up with new ideas and building on stuff. And, you know, with Orphan Black, it was particularly fun because we're all obviously super fans of the show. <laughs> and so it was, I mean, it was really like being in a, I don't know, like 
it was, it was like if there was a, an AO3 chat room for Orphan Black and we were just sitting there <laughs> and like pinging ideas off each other. Um, and then, you know, and then writing it and working together on, on making it as, as good as it could be. So it's, it's a great process. So seeing how you mentioned that the series had ended so perfectly and kind of wrapped everything up, mm-hmm. were there any certain challenges to then writing a series like in this next chapter in a way that didn't necessarily do any sort of disservice to how the original series ended, but also kind of pick up fresh with the new one? Yeah. So what I really like about what we did and what, what the setup for this next chapter is that it starts eight years after the end of the first series. So it's really great because it gives, it gives like the characters enough time there so that on the one hand, you know, we're still coming back to the same characters. We can recognize, um, I think it's pretty easy to, to feel like what's happened to them over those eight years and, and how they've changed and their relationships, you know, but it's enough time that's passed so that I, for me, at least, I don't think it feels like it's stomping on that, that resolution and that ending, you know, it's amount of time that people will go on and have new challenges or new concerns and new tensions in their lives. Um, and we're of course also bringing in new characters, new clones, um, among others who are going through, you know, some of the things that the Sestras in, in our clone club did during the series, but in very different ways, because they're coming from very different places. Is this something that has the potential to continue as it picks up and hopefully, you know, as more people check it out, is there now opening for new chapters? So what we have right now is we have a 10 episode season um, and the first episode they they split into. um, So it's kind of like 11 episodes, but basically a 10 episode season um, that will run. Um, it started two weeks ago. There's a new episode that comes out every week. There's going to be a short break in the middle after episode five, which is kind of an awesome place to have a little cliffhanger. I can't tell you what happens there, but it's going to be boom. And, (laughs) and then, you know, from there we have to see, we have to see what the reaction is and if the fans are enjoying it. And then there's definitely the potential to continue depending on how that goes. I was listening to um, an excerpt of the series, which will be included in the show notes. And I really love this. And as someone who, granted, I'm only 35, but I always had this weird fascination with like radio dramas. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was like about a four minute clip of the um, when I was posted on YouTube. And it's super engaging. And again, having Tatiana's voice in her, it's just her narrating. It's perfect. And I just really love how it's paced. And there's just this great tension. And I think this is the next best step in that. And I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yeah. I mean, I, I am someone who, unlike you, I don't listen to audio that much, partly just because like, I don't have a commute and I don't really have a space in my life where it fits to listen instead of reading. Um, but I, I've listened to, obviously I've, I've listened to the audio for this because Tatiana Maslany, um, and, and I've also listened to the audio for Ninth Step Station and what Serial Box does with their immersive audio production, where it's not quite a full radio play, but the amount of sounds they have, which doesn't distract too much from the story, but gives you that ambience, I think works really well. I mean, I find it really cool to listen to and just a great experience. And, and Tatiana, honestly, she takes it to the next level. I mean, the way that she voices the different characters, and we saw that in the show, because while there was a lot of her acting that was physical and, you know, tied to the hair and makeup and the costumes and and just the way she moved and everything, you know, the voices were a really big part of it. The voices, the accents, 
um, this, the way people talked. Yeah, the vocal range was, like, mind-boggling. Like, <laughs> it is. Like, I was almost one of those things that I was almost, I don't want to say mad, but I was so frustrated. Like, I wish I was this talented. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she's incredible. So, you know, I think that that really adds something special to the series. You had mentioned another series, which I really want to get into, which I thought was really cool, which was Ninth Step Station, mm-hmm. which was, of course, created by you and also includes the writing team of Fran Wilde, Jacqueline Koyanagi, uh, Courtesy Chen, which is described as part cop trauma and part political thriller. But I thought the setting of it was really cool because it's set in like basically like a Japanese dystopia, like almost it basically it's a cyberpunk series. But I really thought the premise of this was fun. So I don't know if you want to give like a quick down for those listening. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really fun series to write. So it's set about 15 years in the future and due to a series of events that include natural disaster and kind of political maneuvering and some missiles being fired and so on. China has actually occupied part of Japan, including part of Tokyo. And the U.S. has come in and occupied the other part of Tokyo. So it's kind of like a, um, a bit of a Cold War Berlin, a bit of a 1930s Shanghai feel. So it's that, that sense of a city that's kind of divided by among the great powers and has these different zones. There's also a small ASEAN, that's the um, Association of Southeast Asian Nations um, zone as well that's used as a buffer. So we've got this city that's, that's really divided and has all these tensions going on in it and is con- constantly on the edge of war. And within this, we've written a buddy cop murder mystery procedural. So we have these two cops. There's a a Tokyo Metropolitan Police detective, and then there's a U.S. peacekeeper who gets seconded to to the Tokyo police force as kind of a relationship building thing, and also maybe a little bit of keeping an eye on what's going on on the ground. So these two cops who are both uh, female are working together to solve the various mysteries that come up. And you know, usually there's something that the most things at this point in the life of the city are tied into this geopolitical situation. So there's this really close linkage between the sort of immediate crime solving that happens in each episode and the larger movements that are going on geopolitically. And so it's it's really fun to write. I think to me, it kind of goes into something a little bit bigger. And in looking into your work is the idea of like speculative fiction. Mm hmm. And for better or for worse, and I know some, it might be a little controversial, uh, because the series I was thinking of was um, The Man at the High Castle, which uh, I believe is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been like a lot of, you know, pieces written and a lot of like back and forth as to the controversy surrounding it and the ideas that maybe come up with it. But I noticed that in your work, this concept comes back a lot. And this is something that I really wanted to get into is sort of, you know, your thoughts on speculative fiction and the role it plays in our socio-economic climate. I think that it's really important for us to be able to imagine alternatives, you know, whether they're alternate histories like the man in the high castle, whether they're alternate futures that don't seem very likely, but as long as we can develop them in a way that they feel real to people, you know, because the characters are doing the things that we expect people to do in the larger actors, you know, the national entities or the underground groups or the um, gangs or whoever it is are acting the way that we think those entities would act, then we're essentially kind of playing out scenarios that let us test out 
different approaches to the future and, and really essentially to the present as well. So I use a hashtag a lot of speculative resistance, which is this idea that if we're going to build a better world, we need to be able to imagine it first. We need to be able to think through, you know, what are the alternatives to the world we live in now? What are the things we could be doing differently? And the reason we're not is mainly because of inertia and path dependency and not realizing that those are the options. Right. Or, you know, in some cases, the, the reason we're not doing it is because of massive um, political and economic interests that want to keep things at the status quo. And, you know, in that case as well, it's so important to show the way that things could be different. Right. And I guess with that then becomes a question of what is the end result? Like, what is the end game in that? You know, in the case of, like, let's say, Nine Step Station, you know, something that in the blurb, and I think the ultimate question is, amid the chaos, our leads basically have to decide what they're willing to do for peace, mm -hmm. which is a question that the geek and me always thinking about, like, let's say Star Wars, because that's always my frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And the, the series in general, how it kind of plays like, you know, light side, dark side, mm -hmm. good guys win, bad guys lose. But with, let's say, uh, Rogue One, the Rebellion. The things that they had to do in order to secure peace, it's not exactly as black and white. So they had to do a lot of things that maybe they were not willing to do and make a lot of compromises for what would be considered the greater good. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that we really wanted to do with Ninth Step Station was to look at a situation in which there is, you know, the situation that's, that's fundamentally pretty unjust. Like there's one country occupying another country. Right. Right. To start. And then, which is something that we say all the time shouldn't be done. But if you look at the history of geopolitics, basically, you know, a lot of times it's kind of accepted that might makes right. And then there's this other country, which is ostensibly helping, but is also kind of occupying and kind of taking a, a greater and greater role in the governance of the you know, the territory that they're in. And so we really wanted to look at the tension for the, the main characters in terms of, you know, especially one of them is, is a peacekeeper. Her role is to keep peace and prevent the war from breaking out again. Right, exactly. Um, the other one is a cop. You know, her role is, is to maintain order and keep chaos from breaking out. And so we wanted them both to have to face over and over again you know, is this worth it if the if the peace is unjust and if the order that we're working under is unjust? And, you know, what point does that break? And we start, you know, do they start working with the resistance? Do they start supporting the organized crime that are working in some ways towards the resistance? Do they, what do they do? And this is something that even now we're really having to sort of ask ourselves, is something like peace attainable considering that there's so many views as to how to go about it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think we need to, we need to ask these questions because it's very easy to say, oh, peace is always right, you know, as, as long as we can maintain peace. But I mean, that's a question that's come up over and over again over the last century in terms of, you know, what do you do to appease? And at what point is that no longer an option? And I'm, you know, I'm generally a pacifist. I think war is, usually something that's done um, for the benefit of people who don't suffer the consequences of it. And so I'm not by any means like um, promoting that, but I think we also have to look very seriously at the kind of deals that we accept to avoid it. And we have to think about, you know, all the, the possible ways that we can affect those and, and affect change um, within that framework. 
And I'd imagine that plays into your humanitarian work and seeing as how you have worked as far as implementing development initiatives and, you know, disaster relief in countries like Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Darfur, you've basically lived around the world and dealt with all these scenarios and handled crisis. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be honest because I have no reason to lie to you, but I've only lived in New York and like Northeastern Jersey. Like I haven't quite exactly visited the world. So while I do have an idea of the things I would like to see happen in the world, but it's hard to do that if you haven't really seen that much of it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I've been really, really lucky um, and privileged to be able to travel as much as I have and, and work and live in other places as much as I have. And it's certainly affected my worldview hugely um, and really impacted my writing and the kinds of stories that I want to tell. But that said, I mean, one of the things I've learned is, you know, I mean, there are a lot of differences in the way people live in different places. But in general, overall, fundamentally, you know, you see a lot of the same behaviors in the same way that people interact with each other. And, you know, I think we can certainly see here similar examples of those same questions. And I think that it's something that is, if we're, if we're observing carefully anywhere that we, that we are, we can observe what's going on and draw some of these, these same ideas from it. Right. I'd imagine even though there's a lot of differences, there's also a lot of similarities, which on one end is a little comforting, but it's also a little disconcerting depending on which side you're looking at it from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Your first book, um, Informocracy, I was um, looking into this and it was named one of the best books of 2016, uh, Beck's Fiction of 2016, Barnes & Noble Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of 2016. Like, There's been a lot of accolades for this book. And something in this book that you discussed that I thought was an interesting idea that I personally hadn't really considered a lot of, which is um, what you refer to as narrative disorder, mm -hmm. which from what I was reading, you described as a compulsion to create stories out of the events we observe, layering on extra plots, subplots, ascribing overarching personality traits based on limited data points. And I was like, that is a really interesting idea that one that I never really considered. So I don't know if you wanted to maybe expand on that a little bit and how it informs your writing. Sure. Um, yeah. So the, the idea of narrative disorder, which um, by the way, I expand on, there's a, a short story that's available for free online from Fireside Fiction. And then there's an associated essay called The Narrative Spectrum, which in which I go into more of it. So if people are interested, they can look those up, just, you know, Google my name and Fireside Fiction or, or Narrative Disorder and Fireside Fiction, and you'll find them. And so, you know, the idea is it really, it relates to the amount of content that I think we all consume, the, the stories that we're all consuming all the time today, which is, and it's something that's been true in the past too, but I think we've, we've really accelerated it. And, you know, part of where I see this is this, and there's been a lot of news about this recently, but, you know, this Hollywood compunction, this, this, this need that Hollywood has to keep uh, rebooting stuff and remaking stuff. And it's like, even though, you know, the amount of media that's out there, we could watch movies constantly for our entire lives or read books constantly for our entire lives and not get anywhere near the bottom of it. And yet there's still like, we have to make things so fast. We can't even hire new writers. We're just going to do the same story again. I, I mean, I'm writing from my own experience. I have this addiction where, you know, <laughs> I'm on overdrive, you know, lining up the books so that I know that I have something to read and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what to put in my Netflix queue. And we just were very into stories. And I think it started to seep beyond 
our entertainment where you see that um, news stories, like if you look at a feature news story, the way it's structured is very much along the lines of the sort of narratives that are common and popular in the media that we watch and read. Right, exactly. I have been kind of noticing that myself, which is why I found this so fascinating, not even realizing that this was a thing. But then now, now that there's sort of like a name for it, so looking at it, it's like, oh, wow, I think you might be onto something here. Yeah. And so we, you know, they're in advertisements, they're in everything really. And we're very trained to recognize the specific narrative tropes that are common and popular to this moment and, and place and cultural uh, era, which are different in different places. I mean, if you read um, stories from a different place or a different time, they can feel very different. They don't necessarily have that same satisfaction at first, because you need to accustom yourself to their narrative beats, which can be really refreshing. And and usually, eventually, you can get your brain into that pattern, and then then it works for you. You know, so it's it's very much a culturally dependent thing. Um, but but my, you know, what I'm what I'm writing about with narrative disorder is that there there is this addiction, and as people get you know more and more, as they just are more and more saturated with these stories, they tend to look for these patterns in real life. And so people expect real life to a certain extent to play out the way that the stories they read play out. And this can be really problematic, like really, really, really super problematic, because obviously life does not always do that. Um, and it's not a good idea to bet on it. But on the other hand, you know, for some of my characters who have particularly strong, intense versions of this disorder in, in my book, it also works as a kind of intuition, um, and this is mostly because since a lot of the people around them are working on the basis of the same stories, right. people, people will sometimes act in ways that lead reality to, to work it in the same story beats. And so, you know, people who are very attuned to it can have some predictive power in that way. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm just really playing with a lot of these ideas about narrative and the way we create narrative and the way that we both misinterpret reality and change reality to, to fit our ideas about what, what stories should be. And also, you know, these, these ideas about how a lot of things that we call disorders or neurodivergence, um, can have, you know, effects that are both very difficult to deal with and also, you know, can be useful in some ways. Is that sort of a coping mechanism, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think it's, it is in a lot of ways. Um, I, it's, you know, it's something that I think that it particularly you'll see in the story um, on Fireside, this one character who has a particularly strong version of the disorder just tries to figure out how to work with it um, and how to to deal with seeing life through this lens. With that said, though, has that affected how you've approached Orphan Black or these other series that you've worked on? Um, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that my thoughts on narrative disorder, you know, I narrative disorder in with that name and the the characteristics that I put in the diagnosis is a an artifact of the world, the future that I created for the sentinel cycle. So as a term, <laughs> I mostly only use it in that world. Um, okay. But as something, you know, that I, as a sort of framework for understanding how I relate to the world and in particular to storytelling, it does impact somewhat the way that I work on other fiction because, 
you know, I like my fiction to be both surprising and satisfying. So I don't want things that are too close to those tropes because I hate reading stuff where I know immediately what's going to happen and who's going to end up with whom and who the good guys and where the twist is going to be. And, you know, every beat falls exactly where I expect it to. I don't, I don't like reading that. I, I like to be surprised. So I try to write stuff that's surprising and that doesn't hew to those conventions and those tropes and those beats. Um, but at the same time, I want that sense of closure at the end. I want the story to feel satisfying to me. Um, I typically don't write stuff that's super avant-garde modernist, you know, that breaks up uh, the sense of narrative. So I use my narrative disorder to try and navigate between those those two points. Tropes can be both a plus, you know, and a, a negative because on one end, I'd imagine you try so hard to set yourself apart from most artists and kind of have your own personal touch. But it's sometimes I'd imagine a little bit difficult to do that because how do you do it? Is it a matter of like the road less traveled or is it a matter of just kind of subverting them subtly? So I'd imagine like that kind of plays into a, a lot of trying to actually even craft the story itself. Yeah, definitely. And I also want to be clear that narrative disorder isn't exclusively about tropes the way we understand them in genre like that's definitely a a big part of it but there's also other elements like the pacing and kind of where the beats fall and the little cues that we use to show that a character is going to be something or a different thing and just just sort of the whole range of stuff that we tie into stories so like tropes are one thing but i i do think it goes it goes well beyond that and yeah in terms of tropes specifically i mean i think playing with tropes can be a lot of fun and and can be really surprising in exactly the way that I was talking about. So I don't necessarily think that, that engaging with tropes breaks with, with what I'm, I'm trying to get to, but, but, you know, I think, I mean, for me, I personally, I try to, and when I, when I started writing Infomocracy and then again with Nine Step Station, I was thinking a lot about cyberpunk tropes and kind of building on some of them and and subverting others. So, you know, I'm all in favor of that. But, you know, what I try to do is write as organically as I can so that I think for me, what concerns me most are, on the one hand, plot beats. You know, I don't really want to be able to plot out all my books and have them have the same sort of like when the climax comes and when there's a twist. Right. You know, I want it to be things to feel a little more strange, like, you know, like some winding path that you don't know exactly when you're going to suddenly have a cliff. Um, and then the other thing that I really care about and try to avoid is the sort of physical characteristic cues that are used about, um, characters. So, you know, we, well, we see this a lot in movies, you know, you see character actors who are picked for what they look like. There's a very clear idea in Hollywood of what a heartless bureaucrat looks like and they tend to be there's like a you know a couple of character actors who play them over and over again and they're sort of dry and balding white guys and they dress a certain way and you know and then we have a very clear idea of what action heroes look like and they all look kind of the same even when even when we think we have these very distinct preferences about different actors uh you know we have ideas about there's the leading lady and there's the best friend right and you know, best friends can look certain ways that leading ladies don't look in Hollywood. Very, you know, these are, these are broken occasionally, but very rarely. And so, you know, I think that that's a really, um, 
it's a really dangerous practice. And it happens in books a lot too. I'm just, I'm using Hollywood as an example because I think it's particularly easy to see there. You know, if you pay attention, there's a way that big bad guys look, there's a way that henchmen look, there's a way that they just are signaling to you. And, you know, I think a lot about what would this movie be like if the casting director had switched those two actors in these roles. Right. And I've seen actors, when they describe their experiences with casting and even showing some of the casting sheets and what they're calling for. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's disheartening because some of them, and <laughs> you read them and I was like, I can't believe that, or maybe I could, and maybe that's kind of the sad reality of it is, I can't believe someone would even phrase certain descriptions this way, <laughs> knowing full well that, you know, they're grossly problematic yeah they are and um and like i said we see it in books too you know you see it in terms of of how people signal uh you know the lead character and how people signal who's going to be the romantic interest and people will write things like she had an intelligent face i mean (laughs) what does that what exactly does an intelligent face look like yeah um so so that's one thing that I, I feel really strongly about because I, I do think it's it's incredibly dangerous in terms of how it affects the way we see the world and and just jump to conclusions about people that we meet. And so I try really hard to and it's and it's amazing how these things get into your writing and your thinking, uh, which is narrative disorder. Um, but I try really hard to um, call myself on it when I when I find those things, I try to avoid them really hard. And, and, you know, it's something that I (laughs) I wish other people would really pay attention to and avoid too. It's, you know, it's very much like the, you know, there's this, the pseudoscience in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries of physiognomy and, and this idea that, you know, you could tell something about people's character from like the shape of their forehead and different, but you, you know, if you read like, um, the Brontes, they, they bring this out, you know, this person had, the organ of understanding was very well developed and blah, 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 and you could tell from their chin that they were uh, decisive or whatever. Um, right. And it's been, you know, it's something that we laugh at when we read that, but we do exactly the same thing when we're casting for movies or um, in some cases as well in books. Right. And I get it to a point and I'm not necessarily saying I agree with it and maybe not even fully understand it, but I do get it because for so long that was considered the norm. Yeah. And it's kind of bizarre to me that after all these years, certain things like we still cling to them. And I get it. And I almost wonder if it's sort of like, a you know, talking about earlier about discomfort. I wonder if that's maybe just like a comfort thing, because as much as I think we as people in our stories or maybe even our personal lives, as much as we try really hard to sort of push against certain things and what are being our storytelling and things like that. I think we have a tendency to sometimes cling to things because again, that's what we're used to and that's sort of what we're taught. But again, and that's also why now there's the need to sort of push against that a little bit. So even though it may not necessarily be like this wide sweeping motion, like all at once, but little by little, an idea of doing something differently has to be introduced somewhere by someone. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad I got a chance to talk to you about that because the narrative disorder part, like that was the part that kind of blew my mind and the orphan black part I love. But then I was like, I've never actually heard of this term before. So I do appreciate you, you know, taking the time out and kind of explaining that to me a little bit and kind of helping me bust my ignorance a little bit. Sure. No, my pleasure. And it's a term that I made up. So there's no real reason that you should have heard of it. <laughs> I think other people have used the term um, in other ways, but the, the, the definition is I 
came up with it for the book um, is 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 like that. So yeah, it's not it's not at all a common term, um, but hopefully it'll it'll go that way because I do think it's a useful way of thinking about some of the things that um, affect our interpretation of the world. <laughs> so are there any other projects that you would like to work on if given a time or maybe even something like a dream project of sorts? I don't know. I would just find it kind of like a fun question to ask my guests sometimes. Not really. Although, you know, I wouldn't have said that working on an Orphan Black sequel was a dream project until someone suggested it to me just because it hadn't occurred to me. And then I was like, yes, that's, that's my dream. I want to do that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I mainly want to keep writing, um, interesting novels that are all different from each other. So that's what I work on in between um, working on serials and short stories and essays, um, which I'm currently really busy with. So, <laughs> <laughs> Working with serials, do you see this something that will grow and expand, especially since podcasting, and even though it's been around for over 15 years, people are now starting to realize like this is a format that is stuck around that is viable. So do you have any ideas as maybe like the landscape and where that goes in the future? I think it's a great format and, and medium for this moment in terms of the way that people are listening to and, and watching and reading content. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be done with it. As I said, you know, Serial Box has this wide range of different genres and subgenres. They also have done some playing with the forms. So, like they have one serial where there's a podcast, which is like a fictional podcast inside the serial. So there's sort of a meta text thing going on. So there's, I think there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff that can go on. And then there's the like the full radio play option and the immersive audio option and the just plain audiobook option. You know, there's just, there's a, a great, there's a great amount of stuff that can be explored here. Well, thank you so much, Malka. I greatly appreciate you taking the time out and uh, sharing your story and also things that you've been working on. I do greatly appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Before we head out, let everybody know where they can interact with you if they so choose or any other sites or titles, anything else you wish to put out there before we leave. I have a short story and poetry collection that comes out November 16th from Mason Jar Press and it's called And Other Disasters. So that's the, the newest thing that I have coming out. You can pre-order it now for a discount until it comes out from Mason Jar Press's site and it will be available in bookstores as well as eventually on Amazon as well. Uh, you can find more about me and my work on my website, which is malkaolder.wordpress.com. Um, and I have there a list of all my publications. A lot of the shorter stuff is free online to read. So short stories or essays or poems. And you can find me on Twitter at M underscore older. I have a Facebook author page and all the usual stuff. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, everybody check that out. And of course, all you from black fans, please check this out. Support this because I know a few of them out there. Um, quick shout out to Jenny Wood if you happen to be listening. I know you're probably already <laughs> well into the season. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. And that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues. And we will see you next issue.
more great podcasts, visit adrianhasissues.com.